Thank y'all for being here tonight. We have a nice group, some, some new faces tonight and some that have been here all along. I, I just want to say to start that I've really enjoyed being a part of this study of the miracles of Matthew with you. Um, thank, some of you have been here week after week after week, and I just appreciate your faithfulness so much, and I appreciate your... Um, and the way you've put up with kind of our unusual style of delivering these lessons with the different teachers, kind of rotating random teachers. So thanks for being here and being a part of that. Hi, Todd and Tina. Come on in. There's handouts right up here. So great. Um, as Stuart shared last week, we're ending the series. In fact, we have just a few more weeks. Next week, Stuart will teach, and he's going to end the book of Matthew with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 will be the focus, which is particularly fitting since he is our missions pastor. He'll kind of remind us of what Christ commissioned us to do. Um, and then the following week, oh wait, I said that was the 18th. Next week's the 11th, right? Yes, the 11th. The 18th, we'll do a recap of all of the whole book of Matthew, and I'll facilitate that as well. And then the 25th, um, it will be the last Wednesday night of the school year, and that night is when our RAs, our GAs, and our mission friends will receive their awards for the year. And you are graciously invited to attend. They would love to see you and have you support what they've done, and I think you'd be encouraged by knowing what the service projects they've done and the scripture they've learned as well, so hope you can be a part of that. But that takes us back to tonight, and you know our series has been Miracles of Matthew, King Jesus, and we've looked at lots of different miracles, but tonight we're going to look at one that's a little bit different. We're going to look at miracles, well, a miracle that Jesus didn't perform, but rather one that was basically performed on him, to him. Does that pique your interest a bit? Okay. Well, then open your Bibles to Matthew 17, and I'll pray for us, and we'll get going. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. Thank you for your word and what you've taught us. I pray that you would speak to us again tonight. Help us to understand more about you and more about King Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, while you're turning, if you're not there yet, um, remember we briefly mentioned this several weeks ago when we were in the small fellowship hall, and I, I got to teach the story of the, the boy, the father coming with his demon-possessed son, and we just mentioned that they'd come down from a mountain. So this is still part of Matthew 17, and it's the story of the transfiguration. So I'm just going to read the basis of the story, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll look at them a verse at a time or so, okay? So Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8, and I'm using my really old NIV here. So, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Isn't it a great story? Great story of our glorious and compassionate king. But let's look at a verse at a time. Ready? Here we go. We're going to start. Sorry, these, I'm going to take them really slowly, but there's just a lot to look at. Uh, verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. First few words, after six days and after six days. After six days, what does that mean? We'll flip back in your Bible to chapter 16. See your headings there. Jesus had been teaching and healing, and then Peter confessed who Christ was. And then Jesus told them something pretty astounding. He told them that he needed to go to Jerusalem, that's in verse 21, and that while he was there, he'd be arrested and killed on the third day and be raised. Do you remember how did the disciples respond when he told them that? Particularly Peter. How did Peter respond? Yeah, Not going to happen. Not gonna happen. That's exactly what he said. Uh, he said he took him aside and, and rebuked him. I just, just thinking about that, Peter telling Jesus, no, that's not going to happen. No, stop talking like that. Oh, it's just shocking, but I guess we can't. Poor Peter, yeah. And then I wonder how often we do that too. You know. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Peter. Um, but Jesus took him and said, Peter, get behind me. Your words are from Satan. This, this is not right. No. And he spoke to the disciples then. I love this. He reminded the disciples that to follow him, they'd have to deny themselves what they thought was right. And they'd have to um, pick up their cross Interesting foreshadowing that he said they had to pick up their figurative cross before he picked up his literal cross. But they'd have to do both to follow him. Well, all that happened, and then six days passed, and Jesus took his inner circle up on the mountain, including Peter, who had just confessed him and just rebuked him six days earlier where they saw this massive demonstration of the deity of Jesus. Definitely a miracle. And I don't think it was a mistake or a coincidence that Peter was one of the ones that went up there. Jesus' timing is perfect. It was like he was saying, this is what is going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. I am. This is part of the plan. But then he showed them that at the transfiguration. He laid out the truth, and then he showed them who he was then. Okay, let's keep going. Um, verse 2. Well, let's start. After six days, Jesus took him with Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let's look at that word, Transfigured. 
Transfiguration is when something changes in a very notable way, usually from a lowly state to a much greater state. Of the passages that discuss the transfiguration event, two of them, the Matthew one and the Mark one, both use the Greek word metamorpho, metamorpho, which means to change from one form into another. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. Other times in scripture, you might see it translated as transform or transformed. The definition is here and on your listening sheet as well. Let's see. Um, It's actually a compound word. Meta meaning above or beyond and morpho meaning to form. So it's like forming above and beyond from this lowly state to this greater state. That's what happened to Jesus. What's the most common usage of the word metamorphosis for us today? Butterfly, yes. The change in the life cycle of a butterfly. From this lowly state of a caterpillar, clinging to the ground, mindlessly eating, to this beautiful butterfly with wings to carry it to new heights, new perspectives. So consider that. And in this passage, the caterpillar, this lowly man, even though he wasn't really a lowly man, but Jesus had taken the form of a man, revealed his butterflyness, his glory, his glorified state. Um, at least in a physical sense, he, had, he showed us a glimpse of his glory for a brief moment. And it also says that his clothes shone, became white as light, they shone like the sun. Stop for a minute and ponder that. On this dark mountain, Jesus shone bright and white. Do you see why I said he showed his glory in that way? Think about Jesus. He tells us he's the light of the world. And John tells us way more about that in the book of Revelation. Oh, I forgot. There's a quote there I forgot to put up there. Transfiguration appears to have given us a preview of Christ's glorified body. But let's look at Revelation. Um, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Just as you read it, look at all of the references to light, fire, shine, burning, all of these words. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. No wonder when he was transfigured on that mountain did he shine, because that's who he is. This is who he is. And Revelation tells us even more. Here's just two chapter 21, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. A chapter later, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. 
one day in that new heaven and earth, we won't need the sun or the moon anymore. There'll be no darkness either. There'll only be light, light of our Lord God shining forth. And just like they did on that mountain that day, we will bathe in his light, bask in his light. What a day that, not a day, what an eternity that will be for us. Let's go back to our passage. Jesus is there. He's transfigured. Verse 3 says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Let's talk about the significance of Moses and Elijah for a minute here. First, you tell me, who is Moses and what do we know about him? I mean, not all that you know about him, just a sentence or two. Tell me, who is Moses? Thank you. Yes, he led the Israelites out, okay? What else? He wrote the Pentateuch. And what is another word for the Pentateuch? I'm sorry? Torah and the law, yes. So he wrote what we know of as the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Moses represents the law, okay? And then who was the other one that was there with him? Moses was there, and who else? Elijah. Who is Elijah? A prophet. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. We hear a story. In fact, some people say he's king of the prophets or the leader of the prophets or the head of the prophets. Um, his stories in First Kings, at Elijah's word from God, kings trembled, rain stopped, a jug of oil never ran dry, a boy was raised from the dead, fire fell from the sky, revival broke out, hundreds of idolatrous prophets of Baal were executed. Moses was the author of the law, and Elijah was representative of the prophets. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Kind of reminds you of what Jesus said just a few chapters before. In Matthew 5, he tells us, He's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's quite a theme in Matthew about how um, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all of that. The law and the prophets. He said, All of those point to me. The law, it points to your need for a savior. The prophets were all talking about me. I didn't come to it, get rid of that. I came to show you what they were talking about. So when he was there on that mount and was transfigured, he was saying, look, the law and the prophets are here, and they point to me too. Interesting, isn't it? I thought that was interesting. It was like he said, I didn't come to destroy what was written in the past. I'm the one the prophets pointed towards. My glory is enough for them, and it's enough for you too. 
But there's likely another reason why these two men were chosen to be present there as well. I found this quote that I just thought was really good. Um, it made me think about things differently. It was about Moses and Elijah, um, and it's from Matthew Kent. And he said, we have two instances where these men had powerful experiences with God. So he's talking about Old Testament experiences that both Moses and Elijah had. In fact, they can both say that they were personally in the presence of the glory of God in a profound and powerful way, but neither of them saw God's face. Think about it. Both of the times, and we'll, talk, we'll look at them briefly here, but God showed his glory or a glimpse of his glory to them, but he didn't allow them to see his face. For Moses, it was in Exodus. It was right after the golden calf fiasco, and God had told the people they needed to leave. And Moses pleaded with the Lord to show himself. Before I take these people any further, please show me your glory. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, protecting him. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. He was going to show him a glimpse of his glory, but he was going to protect him from seeing his face. For Elijah, it was in, again, 1 Kings. It was when Jezebel was searching, or what's the word? Chasing him, that's the word, <laughs> chasing him. Threatened to kill him, and he hid in a cave, and God said, what are you doing? And he starts whining and saying, oh, I'm the only one left, and you know, I, I've done all this for you, God, and here I am. And God says, he, God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God spoke to Elijah in a whisper, but he didn't let him see his face. Moses didn't get to see his face. Not until that moment on the mountain when Jesus, God the Son, was transfigured before them, that's when they got to see God's face. They got to see the God-man, Jesus, for the first time. Cool to think about, isn't it? So much more we could say here. But let's go back to our passage. So I'm going back to Matthew. And now we're in verse 5. Um, 
he was still speaking, he being uh, Peter was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud over... Oh, did I? Wait, never mind. I messed up. Again, let's see. Let's go back. There we go. I want us to look at verse 4. What Peter said. Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here if you wish. I'll make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So a minute ago, Jennifer said, poor Peter, or, or Peter, Peter. And I must confess, the first time, <clears throat> well, for many years, I thought the same thing. Peter, 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 come on. Um, but I, I, I learned something this last week, and I think I understand a little more of what Peter was doing here. Consider that there's more to the request. He wasn't just talking to hear himself talk, I don't think. You see, one of the things that Moses, who was there before him, one of the things that Peter knew about Moses was that when Moses went and received his instructions from God, he was given instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle, a tent for the worship of God while they traveled through the wilderness. So Peter was being Peter, but he was also trying to respond in a way that he thought was appropriate for the moment. And his only frame of reference for someone coming down or an entity emanating holy light would have been the story of Moses coming down from the mountain. Do you remember Moses? He had to cover his face after he'd spent time with God because his face shone with that brilliance. So Peter sees this shining image, and he sees Moses, and he thinks, tabernacle, tabernacle, tents, let's, ba- let's do tents, tents where we can worship God too. So I've kind of cut Peter a break a little bit. <laughs> I think there was a little bit more to it than him just just running his mouth. He just didn't, he thought that a divine appearance and light all added up to building a tabernacle for worship. What he didn't realize yet was that God himself had been walking around with him for three years and that one day God in the form of the Holy Spirit would actually dwell within him. So, but he learned that. Okay, now we can go back to, chat, to verse 5. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Some familiar things here. First, what the voice said. Where have you heard that phrase? This is my beloved Son, with whom... I'm sorry? Baptism, yes, at his baptism. Uh, An almost identical phrase was recorded then at the beginning of his ministry when he was baptized. And now three and a half years later, God spoke from heaven and said, this, he's my son, and I approve of him. Yes, sir. Sherry, I'm still on your your previous point, Mm -hmm. but isn't that often how we make a mistake praying? We, We see a certain thing about God's purpose. And so we pray within that circle, 
moved it and us see a bigger thing. So our prayers aren't answered because we're just not seeing the larger purpose. I mean, Peter was actually responding in small praying, but he just wasn't seeing how big the problem was. No. Yeah, and I think that we do that. Uh, well, maybe you do, Pastor. <laughs> Yes, yes, sir, we do. All of us do. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely we do. We responded the only way we know how, like Peter, the only way. And God says, "Mm -mm, look bigger, Look, look, look broader. Yes, thank you. No, I'm sorry. You know, I was just teasing you. Um, all right, where were we? Oh, it was at the baptism three years before. Surely they thought about this when they heard it again. Those three disciples, they surely thought about it. It was another audible confirmation of who Jesus was. And I bet they thought about it again in the days to come when he was arrested and when he was killed they probably were running all everything back through their mind. This is, but God said, this is my son. But God said, they just didn't quite get it. But I said it was an almost identical phrase used at his baptism. And here, there is one difference. Do you notice what it is? What? I heard it over here. Listen, Listen to him. Yes, he added it here. Listen to him. This is my son. He satisfies me. I am content with him. Now listen to him. Listen, Peter. Quit talking and trying to figure out what to do or how to respond. Think bigger. Think broader. Listen. Quit talking. Recognize who's standing by you and listen to him. Listen, Terry. Not just Peter. Listen. It really spoke to me when I was writing this. I thought, how many times is that me? God has to tell me sometimes to just be quiet, just be still, and listen. Before we go on to our last few verses of this section, one more thing about the voice. Did you see where it came from? A cloud, a bright cloud. More Moses parallels, wasn't it? What did the cloud signify when Moses was leading the people? What did that cloud signify? God leading them. Yes, the presence of God, the living God leading them. So here, God spoke from a shining cloud, which represented his faithful, guiding presence about his shining son, who wore a stamp of approval. So now, let's see what happens next. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The voice spoke, and pure, unadulterated fear just came upon them. They fell on their faces. Can you imagine? First, Jesus glowed, and then Moses and Elijah showed up which, by the way, how did they even know it was Moses and Elijah? But they did. And then, then a voice spoke from this bright, bright cloud. No wonder they were afraid. 
they finally had enough and they shrank down and they hid their faces from the sights and the sounds. That's what fear does to us, isn't it? It causes us to shrink back and hide. We're feeling off, so we put off that doctor's appointment because we just don't want to know what he or she's going to tell us. We don't reach out to someone new because we're afraid they won't want to be our friend. So we shrink back and sit in isolation. We believe God's telling us to take a new step of faith, to do some task he's called us to do, and we say, "Mm, I must have misheard him. We shrink back and cower, not wanting to risk failure. But look, y'all, look at these disciples here. They were standing in the manifold presence of God. God the Father spoke to them from a cloud. They literally heard him. And God told him that Jesus, who was standing right there with them, was his son. They were in the presence of the heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. Then God had used them mightily. How could they be afraid? It's so easy to judge them and say, seriously, guys, get it together. There's no reason to fear and shrink back. They should just bask in his presence and do what God told them to do. And yet, what about us? Me and you, as Christ followers, we don't, we're not standing next to the physical presence of Jesus, but we have his spirit residing within us. Shouldn't we too just bask in his presence and boldly do what he tells us to do? Again, as I was writing this, I was thinking about me personally over these last couple of years. And I'll just admit to you, although I'm sure it's no surprise, those of you that have known me for a long time, um, these last two years have been huge growth years for me. I've just seen God do some pretty, to me, amazing things in me from pivoting ministry through the pandemic, trying to figure out how to do things, to taking on additional roles, to standing up here and teaching you. All of those are really big steps for me. Two years ago, any of this would have seemed impossible to me, absolutely impossible. But I'm so glad that God didn't allow me to shrink back in fear and just bury my head. I'm glad he didn't just, that he did just what Jesus did here in this verse. Do you see it? He reached out and he touched them and he said, rise, have no fear. Get up, Terry, don't be afraid. Get up and trust me. It's what he did with me these past two years. And I think that's what he's done with many, many of you as we faced unusual circumstances. Get up. Trust me. And then read again what the disciples saw when they did get up. They lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. Everything else had been cleared away. The cloud, Moses, Elijah, all were gone. Instead, there was only Jesus. The miracle was complete. God had spoken. 
Moses and Elijah had seen the face of God the Son. Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus glorified and heard God's voice. They'd experienced both terror and the compassionate touch of Jesus. I mean, Jesus could have said, get up, stop being afraid. But I don't think that's what he was saying, do you? I think he knew their fear and he reached out tenderly like a parent does to a child. Have you done this with your child or your grandchild before? When you say, look at me, darling, look at me, I got you. I got this. Focus on me. I'm right here. I've got you. Isn't that what he says to us sometimes? We open our eyes, we get up, and we see only Jesus. And then we have whatever we need to face whatever he's called us to do. The whole story is just magnificent. From the setting on the mountain in the promised land where Moses had previously never set foot before, and this time he gets to at the side of the transfiguration. To Peter, James, and John, who were there and saw this miraculous thing, even though Peter had just rebuked Jesus six days before. I put a quote on your listening sheet, and I think I have it up here too, that I, I thought was just particularly good. I confess I don't know the author, but I loved what she wrote says, in Christian teachings, the transfiguration is a pivotal moment, and the setting on the mountain is presented as the point where human nature meets God, the meeting place of the temporal and the eternal, with Jesus himself as the connecting point, acting as the bridge between heaven and earth. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus as the bridge between the temporal and the eternal, Jesus, the connecting point, was what happened there on that mountain, and it's what happens for us when we trust in his substitutionary life and death and resurrection. He is that perfect bridge to God the Father. But there is a little more in the story. We won't spend much time on this, I promise. We're going to pick back up here in verse 9 and do these last few verses. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So first he told them not to tell anybody about this. Until when? Until his resurrection, yes. Until he was suffered and died and rose again. Notice that this time they don't even ask him what he means. And they don't rebuke him. I guess they finally just said, Okay, I'm not sure they really get it yet. In fact, uh, in a later chapter, I don't think we, we see that they don't. Um, but what they do say is they go, but, 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 but Elijah is supposed to come before the end of the age. They were referring to the prophet Malachi's writing about the end of the age. Um, the day of the destruction, God is speaking here, and he said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. They knew, as good Jewish men, they knew that Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah reigned in his ultimate kingdom. And Jesus said, yes, Elijah will come, and Elijah has come. But he wasn't recognized as the prophet sent from God, and he was treated poorly. They did whatever they pleased to him. It reminds me of that phrase, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted to him. And that same thing's going to happen to the Son of Man, too. Again, once again, he's pointing them back to his death and resurrection over and over again to try to get them to get it. But somehow they did, it clicked with them that what he meant was Elijah referred to John the Baptist. That's who he was referring to. Now I'll say it used to confuse me when I was a child. I didn't really get it. I mean, were they saying John was Elijah come back to life? Was he like reincarnated or something? Well, no. No, that wasn't what he was saying. That's not what Jesus meant or what they um, understood. Luke's gospel tells it very clearly here. Luke 1, 16, 17, it's talking about John, and it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, some of the same language as the Malachi, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John came in the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner to the Messiah. Just like Elijah came and pointed to Christ, John came in the same vein, in the same manner as as Elijah did. Jesus, of course, is the one who will complete the restoration and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of God. Jesus is the one both Elijah and John point towards. So that's basically the story. Before we go into some table discussion, I want us to just review a little bit. Everything about this event would have been startling, the complete change, the metamorphosis that occurred the light and power emanating from Jesus, the meeting with Moses and Elijah, and the voice from heaven declaring the Father's love. All of it was a miracle, absolutely supernatural event that no other possible origin except God. So that's why we put it here in the study of the miracles in Matthew. But it wasn't only recorded in Matthew. The Synoptic Gospels all record the story So before we complete the blanks on your listening sheet, and I know you're looking at it like, she forgot that. I didn't forget it, I promise. (laughs) I didn't. I want you to talk for a few minutes first. I put three questions on your listening sheet. I want you to read the other two gospel accounts. They're short, they're short, I promise. And then just list and discuss any new information you find. And then skim John. 1, 1 through 14, and tell me how you think it correlates to the transfiguration. Um, I put one other kind of application question. You can do that tonight, or you can do it at home. Um, We'll come back, and we'll discuss the first two questions together, and then I'll give you the blanks, I promise. Okay. If you're like me, you can't leave without the the filled-in blanks, so... (laughs) 